Two weeks ago, we began a series entitled The Elephant in the Room to talk about issues that are resident in our culture that a lot of times we don't like to talk about, but we know it's there. Two weeks ago, we talked about racism, and then last week, we talked about homosexuality and same-sex attraction. And in both of those, we've taken a look at God's Word, looked at the Bible as to what does the Bible teach about these And so today, we want to talk about a subject that uh, has really uh, affected Alabama within the last week and a half and uh, has been on the front pages, and that is about same-sex marriage. And so today, we want to talk about that and think about what does the Bible say and what, as a believer and as a citizen, how do we approach this subject of same-sex marriage? Marriage. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to open to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. In 2013, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down key provisions in the Defense of Marriage Act, paving the way for a complete redefinition of marriage across our culture by allowing same sex relationships to be classified as so called marriages. Writing for the minority opinion, Justices John Roberts and Anton Scalia both acknowledged that the court had redefined an aspect of marriage that had been unquestioned in our society for most of its existence. Indeed, had been unquestioned in virtually all societies for virtually all of human history. This has led to an avalanche of court cases with judges ruling that the marriage laws of most states are unconstitutional and need to allow for same-sex marriage. We in Alabama are right in the middle of one of these battles. However, most eyes will be pointed towards the Supreme Court who will rule on this issue in the summer. And so I am going to give you the, uh, lay the table out the same way I did on the other two sermons. And that is, you need to push aside any feelings that you have of any of the Supreme Court justices that you don't like, federal judges who will not be getting Christmas cards from you, uh, those who are on both extremes of this issue, who spew vitriol and anger, rather than promote dialogue, gentleness, and respect. And I want to take all of those and just push them off the table. And on this morning, let's just take a biblical, rational look at this issue of same-sex marriage. And I think if we approach it that way, it will help us to be able to understand where we stand on it and also be able to discuss ideas as we're out in the marketplace. Well, to start off, I think the first thing we need to do is get a biblical view of marriage. Um, God is the one who created it. It was his idea, so let's talk about it. In fact, that's the very first point, is that marriage between a man and a woman is God's idea. And it's found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Let's just walk through those verses. And as you walk through that, you begin to see what it is uh, about marriage. What, what, what are the definition of marriage? In verse 18, as you get to verse 18, just let me just give you a little bit of, of uh, background. Genesis chapter 1 gives an overview of God creating the first six days of creation. You come to chapter 2, and then he specifically talks about how he created man and the animals and, uh, and leads up to both Adam and Eve. And it says that in verse 18 that, that he had already 
created Adam, put him in the garden. I told him he could eat of every fruit except for one tree. And then it says in verse 18, then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And the key is over here is that the man should not be alone. And he says, I will make a helper who's going to be fit for him. Some of your translations are a uh, one that will be suitable for him. See, from God's perspective, when you get to chapter 2, everything that God did was good. After every day he created, he says, this was good, this was good, this was good, this was very good. This is the first time in Scripture to where it says it is not good. And sin has not even come on the scene yet. And so yet in the perfection of the garden, and the perfection of God's creation, there was something that was not good. And what was not good is that the man should be alone. And Adam's loneliness was more than just not having others around. His aloneness was a result of not having a helper that was fit for him, a helper that was suitable for him. So God began to remedy that. You come to verses 19 and 20. And we look at 19 and 20. It says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And so as he named all the animals, it says the man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. You've got your exact same phrase that he had. All the animals passed by, there was not a helper fit for him. So that's where you get into verse 21. And when you get to verse 21, he says this. He says, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What God does is God brings Adam, man, to realize that he needs someone equal to him, made with the same nature that he possesses, but yet be different from him, in order to help him to do the things that he could never do on his own. What Adam needed was someone to compliment him. And by that, we mean everything from biological to psychological to spiritual complementation. Someone to compliment him. And so to find a helper fit from Adam, what God did was God brought to Adam a woman. He didn't bring to him another man. He didn't bring him two women. He brought him one woman. It was as if Adam was the sole piece of a puzzle designed for another piece where none existed. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm here, there's a purpose for me, but I need to be a part of, of something more. And so after seeing Eve, the female, Adam understood this profound truth. And he realized that God had made male for female. Together, she and I are one bone, one flesh. In essence, he says, we are one being. In essence, we are one being. Now, I've always loved this verse, and I love to use it in a, in a wedding ceremony, uh, because when you, when you read it uh, to where he says, she's bone in my bone and flesh in my flesh, we just think that's just a, some wonderful poetry. But when you look at the actual Hebrew, it is like he's saying, whoa, this is incredible. <laughs> it's like a high five to God. Now, now we're talking. This is what I've been looking for. I mean, there was an excitement there. He knew right away that this is what would compliment him. 
This is what he needed. And so, once you get to the end of verse 23, the stage is set for the institution of marriage. And that's verse 24. And in verse 24, it says, Therefore, because of all this, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Husband and wife in marriage is the very first institution that God created. It is the primary institution of the society that God created. Marriage is not a creation of the state or the church or even the Southern Baptist Convention. It was instituted by God, and God set out the parameters, one man and one woman. Now, the state doesn't create marriage. It can only recognize it. God is the one that created marriage. But we operate within a government that they recognize marriage, okay? And then they regulate it. And the state, despite all its efforts to redefine marriage in our culture, will never really be able to redefine marriage. Marriage will always be what marriage was created to be, no matter what activists, judges, runaway legislators, or even the majority of voters may decide. The government cannot change the definition that God has established. The only true marriage in God's eyes remains the exclusive permanent union of a man and a woman. So what we need to understand is God is the one that set the definition. We may come back as a culture and say, well, we're going to redefine it. But in essence, you can't. He's the one that's defined it. Now, we can mess around with it and do some different things. But marriage, in God's eyes, is one man, one woman, permanent relationship. Let me give you a second point. The second point is when you move to the New Testament, you find out that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. So all the way back here in Genesis chapter 2, When God created man and woman, and he knew that sin would enter the world, he knew that there would be a sacrifice. He knew that his son would have to come, and he knew that there would be the church. And so he makes it a picture of Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, if you looked in verses 31 through 32, if you start in the 22nd verse and went to the end of that chapter, it is talking about how husbands should treat wives, how wives should treat husbands. And it says here, after he's done all of that, he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Oh, don't lose this. He's coming back to what was said in Genesis. Leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, to become one flesh. And he says, this is a picture of Christ and the church. The man is to be the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. It says the woman is to submit to the man, even as the church submits to Christ. And he talks about this incredible relationship of how much Christ incredibly loves the church and how much the church incredibly loves Christ. And he says, this is the picture. And so the ultimate is for there to be a marriage where there's a man and a woman, there's that husband and wife, and they live for the kingdom of God, and they live in such a way that when people see them, they see the love of Christ in them, and they see that all just as Christ loved the church, this husband loves his wife. And just as the church loves Christ and, and will serve Christ, so the wife does that. I mean, and that, that is the picture of marriage, and that's what God intended it to be. But when you begin to make some of the attempts at redefinitions we're making today, you can see the fallacy of 
of how that breaks up this picture. And that takes us to the third point, and that's this. There are three essential characteristics of biblical marriage. <clears throat> as you look at marriage, as to what, uh, as to what God has, has, has laid out in his word, there are three essential characteristics. Number one, marriage is two human beings becoming one in every way possible. Marriage is two human beings becoming one in every way possible. In verse 24, it says, and they shall become one flesh. There was no living thing until God made woman that was capable of becoming one flesh with the man. Now, it's interesting. God pronounced the absence of woman as being not good. How about that? All right, ladies, you always remember that. Adam had everything. He was all in the garden. He had his big screen TV. He had, uh, had his chip, his dip, and everything, and it wasn't good. He said it just wasn't good. And he needed his wife. He needed the woman to be there. It left him alone. He was unable to accomplish God's purpose for humanity in his world. And in marriage, two become one. And they become one, united in every possible way. United in their mind, in their body, and in their purpose. So marriage is two human beings becoming one in every way possible. Number two is marriage is oriented toward procreation. Marriage is oriented toward procreation. God had an intent for marriage, and it's found in Genesis 1, 28. And when you see the general description of God's creation in Genesis 1, 28, after he created man and woman, this is what he told them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Part of the responsibility of marriage is as a couple comes together, they are to be fruitful and multiply. They are to fill the earth. So that's where marriage is oriented toward procreation. But then they're also to help form the earth because it says, and they and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God established marriage as the institution through which he would equip humanity to populate and cultivate his creation. So this is God's plan. I've created man. I've created woman. Okay, I've got these two people. What my desire is, God's saying, is that we need to populate the earth. And we need to fill the earth. And we need to subdue the earth. And, 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 and let it be for God's glory. So he set marriage up as the institution in which for that to happen. And so when you just see that marriage is oriented toward procreation, it implies that marriage requires gender diversity. Number three, marriage comes with an expectation of permanence. Marriage comes with an expectation of permanence. In Genesis 2.24, and it says that, uh, in 2.24, that leave father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they become one flesh. And when he says you need to cleave to your wife, you need to be intertwined with your wife, you become one flesh. And it is God's desire that when people get married, they stay married until death parts them. And Jesus, when he was asked about marriage, in Matthew chapter 19, he affirmed this. And in Matthew 19, verse Verse 6, this is what he says. So they are no longer two but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so when marriage 
was instituted by God, it was designed to be permanent. One man, one woman, till death parts you. Now, that's the ingredients of marriage. If you look in the Bible and you say, what does God's word teach, teach about marriage? These three issues. It's two human beings coming one in every way possible. It's oriented toward procreation. And it comes with an expectation of permanence. Now, let me just build on that. Two additional benefits of biblical marriage. Two additional benefits of biblical marriage. Number one, first is this, to multiply godly legacy through raising children. To multiply godly legacy through raising children. In marriage, it provides the context of having and rearing children. Neither women nor men are made emotionally, spiritually, or physically to raise children by themselves. God created family in such a way that it is the primary learning environment for children and a stable environment. It serves as really as a small society where children learn to love, to relate, and by watching mom and dad to understand and appreciate their spiritual, emotional, and sexual identity. God set it up a husband and a wife, and just follow the logic. When he sets up a man and a woman, and he says, you shall become one flesh, and Jesus says, let not man separate. His desire is that a man would be married to a woman, and that they would be able to have children, and they have those children. Those children would grow up in a home where there's a father and there's a mother, and that is a stable, a, 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 a stability, and, and a building block of society. And this is what God has laid out. This is his design for marriage, and that's our second point, and that is to make a foundation for a healthy society, to make a foundation for a healthy society. God created marriage as the basic building block on which to construct a society. The special and sacred bond shared between husband and wife provides for strong families, which in turn provide for stable, healthy social structures. And there's one thing that came out in my research that uh, I really, it was great. I, you know, it's like I, I knew it, but I not really thought about it much, is that what marriage does, it reminds men and women of their responsibilities as spouses and parents and their commitment to their children. And this encourages long-term thinking and planning, and it curbs the temptation to lead, to live for just immediate gratification. You know, once you get married, then all of a sudden you're looking out for each other. And then when children come into your home, almost every parent you ever talk to says, I want to make this world better for my kids. Now, I've never met any parent that says, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to see if we could destroy society so that my child has a more difficult time. Every one of us that has children, we're always working to try to make society better, to make it better for our kids so that that next generation uh, can, can have it even better. And so that's a part of, of the healthy society, a healthy society of, of where we're in this together. And so we want to have strong marriages, raise our kids, and raise them according to God's word and to give them a healthy environment to where they can grow educationally, they can understand their identity as to who they are, and that's what God wants to provide. That is what a biblical idea and a view of marriage is. But... You know, it's interesting through the conversations that I've had leading up to this and then reading what others have said, and, it, and what I'm getting ready to say makes a lot of sense. They say, well, that, that's biblical stuff. That, that's religious stuff. So what if I don't believe in the Bible? 
I mean, is this for everyone? Yes. God's plan is for everyone, Christians and non-Christians alike. And that is the way that he set it up to where it should be a man and a woman and his desire that there would be a oneness that they would have and that there would be procreation and that uh, there would be permanence in the relationship. Yes, that, that's true for whether it be Christian or non-Christian. And then some people though would then would say, well, everything that you're basing is on the Bible, okay? Well, I will stand on the Bible because that's where we got marriage from. That's where the definition comes from, is from God. But, but I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey about saying, okay, let, let's, let's remove that. Let's just say that you don't believe the Bible. You say, ah, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want the God stuff, okay? Let me, let me try these two things just for you to be thinking about on here. Ready? All right, that's the second point. And that is biblical view of marriage consp- corresponds to what we find in the world around us. And what I'm saying is that what God has laid out for us in the book of Genesis, we find in the world around us, okay? Whether it is, is a Christian world or non-Christian world, this is what we find. Number one, Maggie Gallagher, American author, made an interesting statement. Truths every society has to deal with. Procreation makes babies. Society needs babies. Babies deserve mothers and fathers. What you say is you take any society universally and look back through history i believe you can get agreement on this procreation makes babies society needs babies every society needs babies do you know why because if society doesn't have babies what's going to happen society dies there's a hundred percent mortality rate with people you realize that we're all going to go we're all going to go we're all going to die and if there are no babies to come and to take our place, and that society dies and is wiped off the map. And so procreation makes babies. Society needs babies. And every study that we've seen so far is babies deserve mothers and fathers. So if you take a look at that, these three facts are obviously and universally true of every time period in every human culture. You don't need the book of Genesis to tell you this. Every society in human history has to deal with these three truths. Historically, marriage is the institution by which societies have recognized and managed these three truths. And they've done this both culturally and legally. Thus, marriage is a reality that transcends times and cultures. It commits mothers and fathers to each other and to their children. Every society has recognized the need to regulate the relationship that produces and best protects children. So this is universal. You can even take this and and just remove God from it. But it's a truth everyone has to deal with in society. Number two, each time we change the institution of marriage and move away from God's design, we devalue marriage and damage society. Historically, each time that we change the institution of marriage and we move away from God's design, We devalue marriage and we damage society. I'm looking at the definition that we gave you earlier of biblical marriage. So what happens when we begin to change that institution and move away from from God's design? Well, there are two revolutions that have taken place that have directly impacted marriage. First of all is the divorce revolution. When we went in the late 60s, early 1970s, I believe around the 70s, to no-fault divorce... 
The number of divorces skyrocketed at that point. And the divorce revolution has undermined the concept that marriage is a lifelong commitment. Remember we said it is permanence. That's part of it. Part of marriage is permanence. God's design is that it would be permanent. What our culture did is we came up and said, well, I don't really think that it needs to be permanent. If things get tough, hey, one person can break the contract and be out of it. No fault divorce. Let's go that route. And when that happened, and when we loosened the permanence on marriage, the result is there's been an epidemic of broken homes, broken families, and the consequences have been overwhelmingly negative. And I don't believe any thinking person in here would come up to me afterwards and say, hey, man, you know, divorce has been great. I know there's situations where there's abuse and other things to where a person had to get out of that relationship to save their life and the life of their children. I fully understand that, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the easy-to-make divorce to where, hey, things just aren't working out, getting tired of each other, found someone younger, better, whatever, and then we, we move away. To where people walk down the aisle and make a commitment, but in the back of their mind they go, you know, this doesn't work out, we can always get a divorce. No. Where people, when they come down the aisle, says, this is still death parts us. And our desire is to make this permanent. But what has happened is we've changed that institution of marriage to where permanence is not as important as it used to be. And this divorce revolution has broken up families and caused um, uh, overwhelmingly negative results. Second of all is the sexual revolution. And the sexual revolution has undermined the concept that sexual relations should be confined to marriage. When you see that there's that permanence, you'll also read all through Scripture of where uh, (laughs) sexuality, sexual relations outside of marriage is wrong. It's called sexual immorality. And so everywhere in Scripture he talks about it. It should be within the bonds of marriage. But when the sexual revolution came then all of a sudden, it's just like people are going out here having affairs and people are are having sex outside of marriage, before marriage, all these different things. And as a result, what have we seen? There's an epidemic of abortions, sexually transmitted diseases, out-of-wedlock births, and the consequences, again, have been overwhelmingly negative. Now, none of these two things, the divorce revolution, sexual revolution, Can you stand up and point to the gay community and say, yeah, it's their fault? No. It's the heterosexual community. It is us. It's the church that have allowed these things to come in. And because we have been messing with the institution of marriage, God's design, then we are seeing negative impact. We are seeing consequences that are felt in every person here. Every person sitting in this worship center has felt an impact, either through, people, either through sexual immorality or divorce. We've all seen it, either in a family or a friend or personally. And it's painful. And that's where we come to this next stage as to where we are in 2015. And there is a social and political pressure to redefine what constitutes marriage itself. Now, if we're going to try to redefine marriage itself, and once again, 
take God's definition and say, we're going to tinker with it, history tells us there will be damaging consequences. We've got history to rely on. So now, I want you to hear me very clearly. This is not an attack on people that are gay or homosexuals. There's not one, one person that is a gay lifestyle that would say, I feel like that I want to get married with my partner and, and, uh, and I think I'm doing this so that I can destroy society. Not at all. Not at all. But what I am saying is that when we begin to mess with God's definition of marriage, history has shown that there will be consequences and there will be damaging consequences to our society and to generations to come. And so when, as a believer, I can, I can see this as a believer, I can see this as a non-believer to see the damage that has been done and my desire is that we don't keep tinkering with God's definition of marriage. Um, so how so how do we respond? So how do how do Christ followers respond to this? I want to give you two things that we need to do. Number one is we need to stand on Scripture with gentleness and respect. Stand on Scripture with gentleness and respect. First Peter chapter three. Peter is writing to a church who is going against the current of the culture. And there's a, a, a lot of uh, sacrifices that are happening. There's a lot of persecution that is happening. And look what he says to this church. He says to them, but in your hearts, you need to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, what that is, is when you're talking about the gospel, you need to be able to tell people, this is why I believe, and this is what I believe, and this is why I believe. You could almost take that and, and says, make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. You could take that section, hope that is in you, and put any of the things we've talked about for dealing with racism, dealing with same-sex attraction, dealing with same-sex marriage. And he says, you need to be able to make a defense Okay, make a defense. Yet, don't forget this word, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame because of how you handled it. This is a powder keg of an issue. Same-sex marriage. And it's going to be out, out of our hands. The courts are the ones that are going to make the final decision on there when those courts make decisions whichever way it goes as you as we all get involved in discussions with people we need to be able to stand on scripture and stand on truth to say this this is why why i believe that marriage should not be for those of same sex and and be able to share that but at the same time you do this and you do it with gentleness and respect to where you respect the individual but what you're saying is that I've got a higher view of marriage. I, I just, I, I can't agree with this. Now, I can still love you as an individual. I'll still be friends with you. I still want to share the love of Christ with you. I'm not putting you down whichever way that you go from a personal standpoint. 
we're still there. And it's what we shared last Sunday. And last Sunday when we said, what does the church do? What, what, what are we supposed to do when someone with same-sex attraction comes to us? Those same four things still apply today. That is that you love them as an individual, that you hear them, listen to their story, let them talk to you about either struggles they have or decisions they've made. And then after you've done that, then speak truth, speak truth into their life, lovingly explain that. And last of all is live it out, live out the gospel so they can see it. It's what, what Peter is saying here. You do this with gentleness and respect. And so that, that is what we're supposed to do. I, I watched a short video clip of Rick Warren when he was on uh, Piers Morgan show. Piers Morgan, just a tad liberal. Uh, you know, Piers Morgan, way over there, he's pushing the envelope, everything, trying to get everybody to argue and stuff. And, and he had Rick Warren. He was talking about uh, same-sex marriage. And, uh, and Rick, if you've ever watched Rick uh, handle anything, he's always loving. He's firm on what he believes, but he's very loving, very respectful. And uh, as they're getting ready to close out the interview, Piers Morgan said this. He said, Rick, will there come a time when you and others would evolve in your thinking and say that equality means that everyone can get married gay and straight? Will you evolve in your thinking to that? Rick Warren's response was this. I don't see that happening because I fear the disapproval of God more than I fear your disapproval or the disapproval of society. Whoa. And he said it very lovingly, but it was firm. This is not whether the media is going to like me or you or what culture is going to say. I fear more the disapproval of God than I do the disapproval of others. And he says, so I'm going to stand on God's word. I'm still going to love people. It's not going to change that. If somebody is doing something demeaning to someone who's gay, I need to be the first one in line to protect that person, to say that's not what we're talking about at all. But I'm going to stay strong on this issue. And then let me tell you the last thing that we need to do as a church. Strengthen marriages inside the church. Strengthen marriages inside the church. Interesting passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The church of Corinth is a church that no pastor would want to go to, okay? (laughs) That is one messed up group of people. And there was so much sexual immorality in the city, and there was also sexual immorality happening in the church. And Paul's dealing with all this sexual immorality and all these different things. And then look what he says in verse 12 from the New Living Translation. He says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. You know what he is saying? He says, listen, we need to take care of what's happening in our own house before we start going out and correcting those things outside the church. And it's very difficult for Christians to stand up and talk about the sanctity of marriage when, when the divorce rate is skyrocketing and when sexual immorality many times will, will permeate relationships that we're in. And so I love what Paul says. He says, hey, let, let's worry about inside. Let's strengthen our marriages. Now, folks, there's nothing that that we will be able to do to, um, uh, except by prayer, to be able to to change uh, a decision made by Supreme Court 
or judges. And we have people that battle that. But just the rank and file people, there's really nothing that we can do. But you know what we can do? We can strengthen biblical marriage. And we can show the world what it's like for one man, one woman to be married, to be permanent in their marriage, to love each other, and to have a Christ-honoring marriage. Rather than people looking at marriage and saying, it looks like it's a failure, half of people are getting divorced. And it needs to start in our house. And so whenever these issues come up and we get real frustrated on them, why don't we stop for just a moment and look at our own family and our own marriages? Who knows, maybe God's going to make this like a clarion call to each one of us to say, you know what? I need to love my wife more like Christ loves the church. And maybe some wives will say, maybe I need to have a greater respect for my husband. And maybe as they come together and kind of join hands, they look at their children and say, you know, we need to, maybe we need to be a better example. Maybe we need to try to make this world a little bit better for them. And maybe we need to show them what the love of Christ is all about through the way that we handle our relationship with each other. And I believe if we do that, it's going to help us to be at a greater place of strength when we talk about marriage. But i tell you what it'll also do, is you've got a culture out there of people that have grown up in dysfunctional relationships who are just looking for some type of answers, some type of solid pathway. And wouldn't it be wonderful if they could come into contact with y'all and say, hey, there's something special. Can you tell me what it is? And give you the opportunity to be able to share the love of Christ with them of something that you don't just say you believe, but it's what you really practice. And I think we do that then we can strengthen our marriages and let's get marriage back on the, on the front burner of it's God's design and it works. And it works because we make that commitment to him. Okay? Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Heavenly Father, um, you know, as we deal with situations, it's so interesting that whenever we deal with things that are in our culture, it always sort of comes back to us and our own walk with you. And so I, I pray today, Lord, that as, as we see these issues that are there in our culture, that we don't just sit on the outside and just kind of throw out opinions, but we begin to look at ourselves and say, God, where am I in here? Am I someone who's dealing with racism? Am I, am I someone that's got prejudice within my own heart? Lord, I pray you deal with that. And Lord, if there's someone that's struggling with the same-sex uh, attraction, do I write that off and think that's a sin that, uh, that's above all other sins, knowing that your word does not say that? Or does that draw me to that individual to say that I want to, to love them in Christ and I want to hear their story and I want to help them as they navigate through some difficult times? And Lord, when we get this issue of same sex marriage am I am I going to be the one that's going to be on the front line screaming and hollering or am I the one that's going to be like what Peter said and stand firm on a solid defense but do it in gentleness and do it with respect
And that may a disagreement over an issue never give me license to denigrate or to demean anyone. But to be able to disagree with respect at the whole time showing them the love of Christ. Father, you have shown us this through your son Jesus. Through how he was willing to humble himself to go to a cross to have people spit on him pull the hairs of his beard to beat him to curse him knowing that he could have called says legions of angels to come and just take care of business but he didn't and he took abuse and he took six hours on the cross of physical emotional spiritual pain so that each one of us could be a part of your family. He was willing to do that because he loved us so much. And when he died, taking all of our sins on him, Father, you then worked an incredible miracle because when they took his body down and placed him in the grave, three days later, you raised him from the dead. And because you raised him from the dead, you told the whole world that this is my son, This is exactly who he said he was. And he's conquered sin and he's conquered death. And he's come to show us what it's like to have life with God the Father. And to, Lord, to know that invitation is there for each one of us to accept that and then to become your children and then to live a life purposeful, meaningful, living for you. Lord, may we take that with us. And may we always remember the sacrifice of your son. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.